It's Goldie here, and you regular Pitchfork listeners know that Nick and I can sometimes get off on tangents, especially when we're talking to fascinating guests. And that was never more true than our conversation with George Mambio, where we had a wide-ranging conversation on a number of subjects, much of which didn't get into our podcast. And so if you're just like us and you didn't get enough of George, here is the full interview. Enjoy. George, it's Nick. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, busy times. I mean, things are really kicking off now, and it's really interesting. It's, uh, it's delightful. Did you happen to see the... Uh... There's a giant facing page in today's Financial Times that says capitalism needs a reset. <laughs> Did you see that? No, I didn't. Yeah. See that. No. <laughs> was that, were, I, you, were you responsible for that? Uh, no, <laughs> sadly. Well, maybe we yeah, were both. Directly. Yeah. Uh, by the way, George, I'm, I'm joined here by uh, David Goldstein. We call him Goldie. Hi, George. Hello, David. Yeah. Nice yeah. to meet you. Yeah. Good, good to meet you after after reading your book and, yeah. and some of your articles. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, uh, George, it's so nice to talk to you. We had such a fun time together in uh, yeah. Edinburgh. By the way, I'm about a third of the way through your book, Poisoned Arrows, which is just oh, right. an astonishingly interesting and uh, ridiculous story. I know. It's yeah. But we're so pleased uh, to have you on the podcast, uh, which is devoted to trying to help people understand both neoclassical economics and neoliberalism and getting them to see these things, these sets of ideas as human created constructs that uh, it, for, that for today largely take the form of um, protection rackets for rich people. And your work on neoliberalism in particular has been so interesting and attractive to us because you you characterize it so well. Yeah, but before we get into any, any conversation, oh. I, I, <laughs> we need to get your slate first. Yeah. So if you could just uh, say your name, tell us who you are, what you do, and plug whichever book or books you want to plug. I'm George Monbiot. I'm a journalist and campaigner, professional troublemaker, or so I'm told. Um, I uh, write about a wide range of subjects, um, particularly environmental, political, economic subjects, really all the stuff which I find fascinating and I think is important. Um, I write a few books. The latest one is called Out of the Wreckage. Uh, which, as the name suggests, tries to navigate a way out of the multiple messes and chaos that we currently find ourselves in. So, you know, I actually came across your writing, um, uh, helping Nick with uh, a book he's working on, and we had a chapter on narrative, and uh, a piece of yours um, uh, in which uh, I thought... you. You had the best definition of neoliberalism yeah. uh, that I that we'd come across. Uh, this this idea of reducing everything to competition. If you could go in, I guess starting point. Tell us at least in from your perspective what neoliberalism is, and then uh, we want to get into where it came from. It's an extraordinary thing, you know the. The, the cleverest trick the devil ever plays is pretending he doesn't exist. And 
this is what neoliberalism has done to great effect over many years. When the doctrine was first hatched, um, particularly in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, people were quite happy to call themselves neoliberals, but gradually that name disappeared and they almost pretend that there is no such thing. And yet it has become the dominant doctrine that governs our lives. And we call it other things. We call it Reaganomics or we call it Thatcherism, depending which country we live in. We just think that it's sort of spontaneously emerged, but it's not. It's a very um, deliberate and um, well-crafted ideology that's been worked on by many people over a long period. Started with um, the work of um, people like um, uh, Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises. And basically, it was a doctrine which says that competition is the defining feature of human life, that, um, and, and that we are fundamentally selfish and greedy, that these are good things because our selfishness and greed can be harnessed to make us all richer, that um, uh, society should really be governed by buying and selling, um, and, and our interactions should more or less be reduced to commercial interactions. And by that means, we can, it claims, make the best decisions. Um, because what buying and selling does is to create a hierarchy of human worth. We can determine who are the best and most worthy people. And there's a very easy way of determining that because they are the richest people. And the people at the bottom of the heap, the poor, well, they are inherently undeserving. How do you know? Because they are poor, because they have failed in the great human competition. And anything that tries to interfere with the discovery of that natural order um, through buying and selling, such as government intervention, regulation, taxation, trade unions, that must be stamped out to allow the whole of society to become a kind of market. That's the theory. That's how it's supposed to work. And apparently that is supposed to deliver us from bureaucracy, from red tape, from chaos, and create a kind of utopia um, in which uh, the invisible hand of the market ensures that we live in the best of all possible worlds. The reality is that it doesn't quite work out like that. <laughs> and to be clear, this is this is not a narrative that um, emerged organically. It was it was an intentionally designed as a counter narrative to um, what they feared was this this you know scourge of. Uh, socialism, uh, either the, the kind in, in uh, Stalinist Russia or the um, democratic socialism that we were seeing in uh, Europe. Yes, that's correct. I mean, when Friedrich Hayek wrote his book, The Road to Serfdom in 1944, he basically considered any attempt to intervene in markets or to create welfare systems, social security systems, was a slippery slope towards totalitarianism, um, and that even such apparently mild interventions as the U.S. New Deal or the beginnings of um, a, a so social democratic welfare state in the U.K. would inevitably lead 
to Stalinism or Nazism or other forms of totalitarianism. Um, and, um, and this sort of slightly extreme and crazy belief, which was really very marginal to begin with, attracted a lot of extremely rich people because they thought, well, you know, a world in which there's hardly any tax, hardly any regulation, no trade unions, that's a great world for millionaires. Yeah. That's a great world for corporations because we can be free. So they started talking about freedom. But they were very careful not to specify freedom for whom. Now, there are many kinds of freedom which we can exercise without intruding on anyone else's freedom. Freedom of speech being a classic example. If I speak freely, it doesn't stop you from speaking freely. Well, at least if I ever shut up, it doesn't. Um, but there are other freedoms which intrude on other people's freedoms. So, for instance... If I say I want to be free from labor regulations, I don't want um, um, my workers um, to impose on me with their demands for holidays, for sick pay, for weekends, for contracts, for pensions, then that freedom which I've acquired is actually a, a massive cost and an imposition upon my workers who then find themselves without economic freedom, without security, uh, without a lot of the good things in life. Their freedoms have been restricted. If, if I am free to pollute the river or to pollute the atmosphere, other people are not free from the impacts of that pollution. In fact, that pollution can be a terrible imposition on the lives of other people. If you pour your toxins into the groundwater, we are not free from poisoned water. So your freedom detracts from our freedom. We, um, and it's a zero-sum game in cases like that. But they were very careful not to say whose freedoms they were talking about. They were just saying freedom, as if it makes us all free. And so with the uh, um, support of some of the world's richest people, Hayek and von Mises and, and many others, started to get together to form what has been described as a sort of neoliberal international. Um, the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947 was where it began, but it quickly proliferated into a massive network of think tanks, of academic departments, of journalists, all sponsored by these immensely rich people to promote these rather wacky ideas and to bring them slowly towards the mainstream. And not only were they promoting them, they were refining them and finding new ways to tell the story so that it became more acceptable to people. It sounded more like common sense and less like something completely crazy. And gradually this completely um, wacky idea becomes more and more accepted within mainstream media, within mainstream society until people say, oh, well, yes, maybe that's, that's sensible. And then when Keynesian social democracy starts to run into big trouble in the 1970s, the neoliberals were able to come forward with this massive network they'd created, this sort of international network, and say, we've got the answer. We've got this whole new story which you can adopt. And people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan immediately pounced on this and said, yes, this is the answer. And by then it wasn't called neoliberalism. It wasn't really called anything. It was just 
it was as if it were a description of a natural process like Darwinian evolution. This is just how society works. And that explains its great power in that it, it, they make it sound as if it's not a doctrine at all, as if it's not an ideology at all, as if it's a description of society. Yeah, it's Econ 101. That, that's what they tell us here. That's right. And, uh, you know, our, our, our friend Yuval Harari has, I think, quite rightly pointed out that the iron law of history is that these meaning systems, these narratives, these what he calls the, these intersubjective realities are always anchored by one of two claims. Either God says or it's a law of nature. Yes. And neoliberalism and neoclassical economics adopt the former, uh, uh, the, the latter. They, they basically assert that these are immutable natural laws, that this is just the way it is. Well, that's absolutely right. And, and it's highly misleading. I mean, they take a basically Hobbesian view of humanity, which is that we are fundamentally selfish and greedy. But um, what we've had in recent years has been a vast amount of science investigating just those questions. You know, what are our fundamental values? What are our dominant values? And um, it's been in, in neuroscience, in social psychology, in anthropology, in evolutionary biology. And remarkably, all those different disciplines have come to very similar conclusions that while the majority of people do have some selfishness and greed in us, those are not, for most of us, our dominant values. Um, our, our more dominant values, our community feeling, our empathy, altruism, kindness towards others, kindness towards our family, kindness towards our neighbors, kindness towards people in general. And actually, we think very poorly of people whose values are primarily selfishness and greed. But there are outliers. There are some people whose, whose values are dominated by selfishness and greed. And unfortunately, a lot of them are in charge. <laughs> broadly speaking, yeah. Yes. Broadly speaking, we are a society of altruists governed by psychopaths. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's about it's about three. So, so sociopaths make up about three percent of the general population. About what percent of corporate boardrooms? I think it was like twenty five percent, wasn't it? <laughs> it's just so depressing. Uh, it, it, so a couple of a couple of things that I'd like to zoom in on. The first is that on our podcast and in our work, we have decided we 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 um, affirmatively adopted the word neoliberalism as the word we would use to describe what we are pushing off against. The, the ideological yeah. level of what we're That's right. pushing uh, off um, against. And, uh, and um, I think what, one of the things that so attracted us to your work is how precisely and usefully you have, um, you have, uh, been able to characterize that set of ideas and it's a complicated thing right it's there's a lot of different dimensions to what it means uh what, what neoliberalism means it's and it's multi-layered and so on and so forth uh uh george soros the financier and philanthropist uh uses the phrase market fundamentalist he thinks that's a better um characterization of it did you how did you how do how did you end up where you ended up well i i have also in the past used market fundamentalism as a description but it's actually 
it, it's a vaguer description than neoliberalism. It doesn't completely capture what neoliberalism is about and how revolutionary the neoliberal ideas are. Because actually you could say that the laissez-faire economics of the 19th century were market fundamentalists. You know, the, the market should be king, we should leave everything to the market. But this is more than leaving it. Neoliberalism is about creating markets in places where there were no markets before. It's about commoditizing almost all of human life. It's about reducing our relations to market relations. So it's saying it's not saying the market as it currently exists should be allowed to do its own thing. It's saying everything should be the market. The market should absorb everything. Then the market is the only legitimate sphere in which decision making should occur. And it's basically delegitimizing politics. It's saying that political decision making is not a legitimate sphere. Um, and, and in fact, politics interferes with the pure functioning of the market, which is conceived as human society in general. And, um, and so actually politicians should butt out, which is the same thing as saying democracy should butt out. Yeah. So this raises a, a question for me um, about, um, I'm, I'm wondering if you think that the Hayek that wrote the word the road to serfdom would embrace the neoliberalism that we have today because he was arguing this was a defense against totalitarianism and it seems to me that this philosophy is leading to totalitarianism well the hayek that wrote the the road to serfdom i think would have had some very major disagreements with the hayek who couple of decades later, wrote the Constitution of Liberty. Um, the Road to Serfdom at least has a coherent internal logic. It's quite an interesting argument, uh, which you can follow from step to step to step. You might disagree with it, but you can say, you know, this is intellectually respectable. It kind of stands up as a contribution to the debate about economics and society. But by the time you get to the Constitution of Liberty, and by the time he wrote that, Hayek had been completely absorbed into the world of the ultra-rich and was basically being sponsored by these immensely rich people. It is completely insane. I mean, it's just a totally mad book, which just is effectively saying whatever very rich people do is by definition good. And even when very rich people appear to do something terrible and crazy, because they are very rich and they are therefore the pioneers of society, we should embrace and congratulate and follow them in, 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 in that crazy thing that they are doing. In other Almost words, sort of perfect... in other words the fountainhead. <laughs> yes. Well, it, you know, there's um, a massive overlap between later Hayek and Ayn Rand and her just bonkers ideas valorizing greed and selfishness and creating the billionaire as a superhero. This is very similar to um, what, what Hayek wrote in the Constitution of Liberty. It is the, the supposedly non-fiction version of the Fountainhead or of Atlas Shrugged. And, um, and it is, I mean, it is just as bonkers. It's completely out there as just a crazy and incoherent set of ideas. But it was kind of necessary for Hayek to take that position if he were to reconcile where the very rich people wanted him to be with his 
previous doctrines. And so he was trying to bridge their position of just wanting complete control and dominance and turning their economic power into political power, which he'd been kind of against in the road to serfdom. He, he, had to, he wanted to keep on side with them. I mean, he was, he was basically a pretty spineless guy. He, um, he, he went with power wherever power took him. Um, and he was completely overwhelmed and obsessed with any political leader who might endorse him. So the first person um, um, to do so was, was Pinochet, um, Augusto Pinochet, um, having, uh, uh, well, before... Uh, the um, coup in, in, that she oversaw in Chile, which uh, where so many people were killed and disappeared and tortured, and Hayek went to Chile and um, and he he said uh, while he was there he said I would rather um, see a a system with economic liberty than a system with democracy if I were faced with a choice between the two. Um, yeah, just the most appalling obsequiousness towards Pinochet and his power. And then a couple of years later, when Mrs. Thatcher became leader of the opposition in the UK, she asked to meet Hayek, and, and she um, was very complimentary about his ideas and said um, that uh, you know, she wanted to make them central to her political program. After meeting her, Hayek was asked by Thatcher's advisors what he thought. And they were expecting to, him to give some sort of thoughtful response and um, interesting comments on what she'd said. And he said, she's so beautiful. You know what? Uh, this gives me newfound respect for Milton Friedman. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, who at least would uh, talk smack to political leaders yeah, exactly. when they disagreed with him? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, George, George, let's turn to uh, narrative. So, y you have this amazing new TED talk uh, out, uh, um, where I think you do the, you know, um, this wonderful job of characterizing the existing narrative. Um, and uh, suggest a new one, and maybe for our listeners, you know, can you can you do that? Well, I, I guess start with the the importance of narrative. Yeah. So yeah, the first thing to say is that we are fundamentally creatures of narrative. You know, when we try to interpret the world, we don't do so as scientists. You know, we like to think of ourselves as having these rational, empirical minds, and we analyze the data and use it to try to work out what's happening, but. You can't actually live like that. You know, I, I'm speaking as someone who it tries to be an empiricist. I've got a science degree. I love science. I love facts and figures. But actually, you know, I recognize that I don't live by them, and no, nor does anyone else, because if we tried to do so, the complexity of the world would simply overwhelm us. So instead, we use shortcuts, and those shortcuts are what we call stories. We tell ourselves stories and we listen out for other people telling stories, which tell us where we are, how we got here, where we might be going, which give us a sort of rough approximation of what's going on in the world. Because otherwise, it's just like these massive data streams coming at us every moment of the day. And, and they, our brains cannot process the amount that's coming at us. And, and so it's, it's, 
we, we have a, a sort of predisposition to listen for stories, but not just any story. There are a number of basic plots that appeal to our minds with particular force. Um, and people will argue about whether it's three basic plots or five basic plots or seven or nine. It always turns out to be an odd number for some reason. Um, and um, and and that remarkably, there is one that has worked again and again in politics and religion to the extent that I think you can quite comfortably say that a political or religious transformation is unlikely to happen unless it can tell a new and gripping story with this narrative structure, with this basic plot line. And the plot line is what I call the restoration story. And it goes like this. Disorder afflicts the land caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero or heroes confronts those powerful and nefarious forces against the odds, overthrows them, and restores harmony to the land. That, that's a basic structure of the restoration story. And it, you know, you, we all know these stories. We've, you, if you read the Bible, if you've read Harry Potter, if you've read the Lord of the Rings, Narnia, uh, uh, yeah, again and again, that plot line comes up. It's a very powerful and very common plot line. But it's also the plot line of just about every successful political or religious transformation there has been across millennia. And, 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 the, and, and it's a plot line which was used extremely effectively, both by Lord Keynes, by John Maynard, Maynard Keynes, and by the neoliberals. Um, and, and that was a big key, I believe, to their success in, in dominating so much of the world's thought and action. It's also the plot line of a lot of unsuccessful movements. Um, so it's not the only thing one needs is a great story, but but that's the. I, I, I believe it is necessary, but not sufficient. And and so, so the story the story the neoliberals um, told um, that it, it went like this: disorder afflicts the land caused by the powerful and nefarious forces of the overwhelming state, which by intruding into our lives and taxing and regulating, crushes individualism and opportunity, um, and therefore diminishing the scope of our lives. But the hero of the story, the freedom-seeking entrepreneur, um, confronts those powerful and nefarious forces, and against the odds, by creating markets where none existed before, rolls back the state, overthrows those forces, and restores harmony to the land in the form of the universal free market. We're creating opportunity and freedom where there was none before. That, that, that's the story. And it's very effectively told in many different forms, in long form, in short form, in books, in pamphlets, in videos, in political speeches. Again and again and again, it's that narrative which comes up. And, and so when people were listening for a new story, after the Keynesian narrative began falling apart, you know, after the Trente Glorieuse, as the French call it, from 1945 to 1975, when everything seemed to be going right, there was high rates of economic growth and everyone had a job and there was lots of investment in public services and this sense of no one being left behind. Um, 
And, and then after 30 years of that, it all started to fall apart a bit. Things went badly wrong. Inflation and, um, and, and capital leakage and many other issues um, uh, uh, afflicting that Keynesian model. People started listening out for another story. And the neoliberals had spent that 30 years working up their story until it was ready to be told very simply, very powerfully. And, and they were intentionally waiting for that moment. I mean, Friedman is, is um, on the record saying, you know, we, we were waiting for this opportunity. We were the ones with the alternative, ready to go, packaged. He actually said in the early 1950s, this might take a generation, but we will get there in the end. And boy, he was so right. They did, you know, and, and they had the long view. They knew exactly what they were doing. And they knew they almost created a sort of algorithm for political transformation. You know, they, 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 because they had those vast resources, um, they had so many people working on it who were paid to work on it through the think tanks, through the academic departments, within the neoliberal newspapers, um, they they refined it and refined it until they knew that they were going to succeed. Now, you know, then neoliberalism hit the buffers big time in 2008, where it basically just collapsed intellectually. It was exposed as intellectually bankrupt, as socially bankrupt, environmentally bankrupt, and above all, plain bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and and the um, and 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 you know you would have thought right this is the moment at which the new narrative takes over. So we all said right you know we need something completely new and it is uh, oh uh, hmm this uh, uh, mm, yes, uh, oh dear you know we don't have a new story and so we face this extraordinary situation where you know it's now eleven years since the collapse of Lehman Brothers and. We're still stuck with that failed, catastrophic ideology. And we're stuck with it because we haven't replaced it with a new story. Yeah, and the best alternatives uh, are either uh, a kinder and gentler form of neoliberalism <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or trying to go back to Marxism or, you know, you know. Or Keynesianism. Yeah, 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 yeah. right. Exactly, and, and, and one of the rules of politics is you, re unless you're a fascist, you can't go back. For some reason, the fascists can keep reinventing <laughs> fascism. I, I don't know why. <laughs> but but no one else can go back. You know, it's, it's like if you try to sort of say, you know, in my father's day, this was what we did, and, and so let's revive this. Uh, you know, young people just say, oh, God, bog off. You know, <laughs> we're, you know, we're just not interested. You yeah, know, that, that 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 went out with. With, with with braces and stiff collars, you know, <laughs> um, um, and and it's really you, you can't excite and galvanize people unless you've got a new story to tell. Well, we got half the story, ha half the story. They've identified the villains. I mean, I think that's why Occupy Wall Street what, uh, captured the imagination. Uh, it's it's where uh, Bernie Sanders has gotten a lot of his support to some extent. Even even Trump, <laughs> when he ran, you're identifying the villains. They just don't have the the second part of the story, which is no, how we're I, going. So, so that is half the story. You you are right, but of course, 
you know, it is meant to be a restoration story. It is meant to put things right. It is meant to bring, return, heart, restore harmony to the land, but in a new way, in a way which hasn't been done before. And and in fact, you know, I think we've got more than half. We've got other little fragments of that story. There's been so much fascinating new work on economics, mostly critique, but also some good new ideas, really interesting stuff on social transformation, on rebuilding community, some really great deep thinking about you know, how we frame um, um, uh, the, the way we live, the metaphors we live by, amazing work, um, above all, I think, by Jeremy Lent um, in his book, The Patterning Instinct. Um, so we've got sort of fragments of the story. We, you know, we, we're, we're sort of part of the way there. And I don't believe, you know, it's going to be produced by one grand old man scratching his beard. You know, I think that era is long past and thank goodness it is. Um, I think it's going to be produced by lots of people bringing their minds together and their different life experiences and their different specialisms um, and, and starting to work up something which is you know, not only a good and powerful idea, but it's actually properly grounded in the real world where you can show this works. Here is the practice showing that this works. And yeah, I'm very interested in in the commons. I think that that um, has, is going to be a big part of it. It's this massively neglected part of economics, um, but there are some really very interesting people indeed um, who, who are beginning to work on how we can extend this notion of the commons into many areas of life. And just today I was meeting with um, David Bollier and um, Silke Helfrich, um, who have written this new book called Free, Fair and Alive, The Insurgent Power of the Commons. Um, and they make some really powerful arguments. I think that's part of the story as well. But what we need to do is to bring all these disparate parts together and turn them into a coherent, compelling, short story that you can explain as quickly and easily as I explain that neoliberal story. Well, it's a lot of the work which we're trying to do here in the office. It was interesting reading your book. I don't know that we, you know, we've turned to the, the commons per se as that part of the the story. I think we're, um, I'd say we're more on revitalizing democracy as part of the solution, the role of government. It's a collective action. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the heart of the new story and George, I think you, you rightly identify this, is in a reimagination around the fundamental nature of humanity, human behavior. Right. And, and and thank and you. By, he, by the way, we spent months uh, trying to craft that into, into Nick's TED Talk, and then you get up on stage right before him yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, and steal, steal Nick's thunder. Yeah, that's all right. And, oh, and, sorry. Yeah, but Nick's talk was great, too. You know, I mean, really, you know, very powerful and effective and you know it's many voices it's many minds you know none of us is going to do this by ourselves we're only every one of us is just one part of the jigsaw that's here. right but the new story has to start with an acknowledgement that the defining feature of human beings and human society is cooperation not selfishness yeah. Yeah. that it, that's right that it is our inherent reciprocity that is at the heart of that, that it's reciprocity, which is the hidden hand of the market. 
right? And, and, and the science shows this very clearly. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It it's unambiguous. Inherently reciprocal beings, but not just reciprocity. Actually, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to sort of just point out that actually the remarkable findings are not just that we're really good at reciprocity, but we're really good at non-reciprocal altruism as well. Absolutely. You know, when you when you give money to a homeless people, you don't expect that homeless person to give you money back. Yeah, you know, we 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 do a lot of things which are firmly in the category of non-reciprocal altruism, and in fact, to understand human nature, we 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 have to see that clearly that this is this is something quite remarkable and very different from what the great majority of animals do. That's right, and that for, and that from that starting point, you can build a new story about. I mean, because <clears throat> to restore. Order to the land is that is that your phrase? <laughs> yeah, restore harmony to the Har- land. Harmony yeah. to the yeah. land. Uh, you have to essentially have an affirmative theory of prosperity, right? Which is which is what order is. Order is prosperity, and and that affirmative theory of prosperity is that it is the cooperation generated by our fundamental nature to. Um, care for one another that is the source of all prosperity and that mm. by building a society based on that proposition and designed around that proposition that's how yeah. we that 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 the, 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 the prosperity comes from from complexity and you know the more prosperous our economy yeah. becomes the more complex it is and those increasing levels of complexity require ever larger degrees of cooperation and that that ever larger degrees of cooperation among strangers requires increasing levels of trust and all of that is grounded in our fundamental pro-social nature we right. are moral creatures that are really sensitive to to injustice and justice. That's right. And that is a very different way of looking at the market than the neoclassical, neoliberal model. That's right. And w- which is why it's justice, not selfishness, that is the cause of harmony and order and, and pr- prosperity. And in and, fact, it's a feedback loop that as the economy becomes more just, you get increasing levels of trust and cooperation and complexity, which makes it more prosperous. Right. And that's the new story, which is the opposite of the neoliberal story, which that's is right. so, the more selfish you are, the better it all will be for everybody else. Yes. So this is why I really want to interest you in the commons, because, um, you know, certainly in, in the sort of current theorization of the commons and indeed the lived practice of it, Everything you're talking about is embodied in 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 that notion. I mean, so so the, a commons um, is uh, it consists of three elements: um, a a particular resource, which could be a piece of land, it could be a software platform, community broadband, a community energy cooperative, all sorts of different things come under the category of that resource. There's, it's a particular community that manages that resource. And it's the rules and negotiations created by that community to do so. And it's not, it's, it's not the state. It's not the market either. It's not capitalism. It's not communism. It's something entirely different. It is the commons. It's a massively misunderstood concept. And it's been massively maligned by people like Garrett Hardin with the tragedy of the commons. He wasn't even talking about a commons. He didn't even know what a commons was. He had no 
practical or even theoretical experience of it. And and it was very striking listening to your beautiful description there of of how humans really function and and what we look for to create genuine prosperity. I was listening to that and thinking that's a really great description. And actually what what you are talking about, every single element of that is embedded within this concept, the column, the the I, you know, it's funny. I remember being taught in college that uh, the entire uh, uh, era of industrial capitalism was kicked off in Britain with the closing of the commons. And there's truth in that. I mean, I think I, I think there really is a lot of truth in that. And um, it was the, the enclosure of, of, of land here. It's privatization. Um, shutting the great majority of people out, um, that then became the, 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 the basis for, 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 for capitalism. And, you know, we've got to recognize that alongside that process came a whole new discourse of human rights, of, of individual justice, of things that we have also benefited from. You know, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Um, and in fact, um, very interestingly, um, the you know the people like the diggers and the levelers and um, in this country quickly picked up on on this notion of individual property rights and said well if you can have individual property rights why shouldn't you have rights in your own person why should not you you, you be your own property and from that a lot of our democratic and and um, political and human rights have been developed so. You know, there is something to be very grateful for there, but there's also the recognition that it basically amounted from the outset to the grabbing by a very small number of people uh, of of the property and possessions of a very large number of people and led to the mass servitude and expulsion and um, dispossession of very large numbers of people. And so... For for um, long periods after uh, enclosure really kicked off in this country, following the dissolution of the monasteries in the in the 16th century, um, uh, roving bands of vagrants moved from county to county, being hounded out wherever they went. There were all these new vagrancy laws, which basically meant they could be um, tortured or killed on site. Um, uh, they could be driven away. Um, and people starved to death in, in large numbers. And later on, in, industrialism in the cities provided a bit of a magnet for a, a lot of people who didn't have um, uh, other means of keeping themselves alive. But um, their conditions in the cities were scarcely better than in the countryside. And there was this sort of industrial destitution taking place with what was basically slavery in the early factories. Um, and... And then we exported those models to other parts of the world through our colonies. And, and enclosure was something that the British originally spread, this notion that we can grab other people's land and call it our land and say that the land itself is our property. This was previously a completely alien notion. Um, you could have property in land. In other words, you could have certain rights over a piece of land, but that the land itself could be your property was something which was just inconceivable before. It's like today saying, this air is my property. The air over this street where I live and over all the other houses, I claim a right to this. The rest of you have no right to it unless you buy some of this air from me. That's how 
extreme and obscene the concept was when it was first mooted. And people were horrified by this notion that you could own the land, the common treasury for all, as Gerard Wynne Stanley called it. Um, but, you know, that, that became embedded and it became normalized. Um, uh, and then John Locke provided a kind of justification for it in his second treatise. A completely insane justification, by the way, which, you know, the moment you start thinking about it, you just say none of this stacks up. But it was highly convenient. That was then picked up by the great jurist William Blackstone in the 18th century, who provided yet more justifications for it. And it was embedded deeply in the laws of both um, Britain and North America um, until we just come to accept this. Um, system of almost universal ownership of natural wealth by private uh, actors as being just normal and natural in the way things have always been. It absolutely is not the way things have always been. So what you're telling us is that neoliberalism is actually grounded in classical liberalism. It, it is. And, and it's a sort of extreme version of, of that. And, and it's a kind of justifying myth. It's a new justifying myth to enable the further enclosure and grabbing of wealth which either belong to everyone or belong to no one, and and then labelling that wealth as being the exclusive property of a particular person or a particular corporation. And then um, corporations can then acquire personhood and the rights of human beings, but none of the responsibilities. Often, you know, they have all sorts of legal get-outs, which ordinary human beings don't have, and demand less and less regulation, even as ordinary citizens are regulated more and more with ever stricter laws against protest and, and, and all sorts of things that you now can't do in public spaces. Um, and we just see this, you know, neoliberalism enhancing those very destructive tendencies within capitalism, but not actually enhancing um, the, the freedoms that, um, that the ordinary people of the land might, might enjoy as a result of capitalism. So we get the worst of both worlds. Well, George, thank you well, so well, much. We have oh, our final question. Oh, yeah, we yeah, always yeah, yeah. have to ask this. Yeah. Okay, we ask this of all our guests. Guests. Why do you do what you do? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. I, I couldn't live any other way. I, 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 a few years ago, I wrote down what I, I felt were the, the um, activities that made life meaningful and purposive. And they were to love and be loved. That, of course, is fundamental to a good life. They were to, to learn and to teach, to create, and to try to do good. And, and you can do all that for entirely selfish reasons. Now, I don't know which of my reasons are selfish and which might be altruistic, but you know, all of those things make me feel like I've got a fulfilling life. So you know, it's a sort of selfish, hedonic reason for that. But it, it feels fulfilling because it happens to align with what I think is the sort of a, 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 a map for creating a better world. And, and so, yeah, you know, if I were to stop doing what I do, I would be miserable because <laughs> I would feel that my life had lost much of its meaning and much of its purpose and, and much of its delight. And, and actually, 
doing all those things fills my life with meaning every day. And, you know, because I have to basically roll in the shit of humanity, I mean, that's my job. You know, I write a column um, for The Guardian about all the terrible things that we're doing and what we might do about it. My life could be really miserable. You know, I have to confront a lot of things that other people can turn their faces away from. But actually, you know, my life is quite wonderful. It's, it, it's fulfilling and, and rich and delightful because I'm engaged every day in these questions. That's fantastic. That's a fantastic well, answer. Well, We're thank- going to give you an A for that answer. Yeah, thank yeah. you for being so engaged. Yeah. Yeah, well, George, it was wonderful to catch up with you. Um, I'm not sure when I'm next going to be in London, uh, but hopefully sometime yeah, this uh, ho- hopefully sometime this fall. In any case, uh, thank you again. Uh, take good care, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Goldie. Real pleasure to talk to both of you. Really brilliant. Thank, thank you. you. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Then. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.